Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Professor Matthews. I'm an economics professor here at Kennesaw State University um, and also the director of the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity. Uh, today's event is a symposium on the economics of the Affordable Care Act. It's organized and funded by KSU's Bagwell Center. You can find out more about the Bagwell Center uh, by visiting us online at coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. That's C-O-L-E-S dot Kennesaw dot E-U slash E-C-O-N-O-P-P. Today's event will provide a thoughtful examination of the economic impacts of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Uh, This is legislation which was signed into law by President Obama actually nearly 10 years ago. I don't know, for me it's hard to believe that it's been that long, but it was uh, March 23rd, 2010 is when this piece of legislation was signed into law. And this legislation, I would say it's fair to say, regardless of what you think about it, it really represents the U.S. healthcare system's most significant regulatory overhaul um, since passage of Medicare and Medicaid back in the 1990s. Um, We have three sessions today that are going to focus on various aspects of the legislation and its, its impact. The first is going to be a keynote address by Dr. Casey Mulligan um, from now until 2.15. Then we'll have a, a short break and then starting at 2.30 we'll have presentations by Drs. Gregory Coleman um, from Pace University and Chuck Cordemanch from University of Kentucky. Uh, then we'll have a short 10 minute break and at 3.30 we'll have a uh, final presentation by Dr. Sarah Miller from University of Michigan, uh, followed by a panel discussion and Q&A session with all four of the presenters. Um, so again, the first uh, uh, talk is going to be by Dr. Casey Mulligan. Dr. Mulligan earned his PhD from the University of Chicago. He's, he has expertise in health economics, the economics of aging, social security, uh, capital and labor taxation, and voting issues. He served as the chief economist for the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He's currently a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. He's written multiple books, including uh, Side Effects and Complications, The Economic Consequences of Healthcare Reform. He's written dozens of peer-reviewed journal articles in prestigious academic outlets, such as the Quarterly Journal of Economics, Journal of Political Economy, Public Choice, Economic Inquiry. Um, He regularly writes newspaper editorials that have appeared in such outlets as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, New York Post, Chicago Sun-Times, and the Chicago Tribune. Today, he will be giving a talk titled, The Unintended Consequences of the Affordable Care Act. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Casey Mulligan to Kennesaw State. Thank you. All right, thanks for coming. Um, I don't know if I can live up to the title, The Unintended Consequences. It sounds like I have to have an exhaustive list, and they would be exhausting uh, and take a long time. But I'm going to hit on some uh, highlights. Um, It's pretty amazing. On the economic side, some of the others will talk about the health side. On the economic side, what happens around the Affordable Care Act is pretty pretty amazing as as an economic phenomenon to have witnessed. So that really kind of three aspects, um, and I say it amazing. I think unicorn is the best metaphor. The types of things you wouldn't think you would ever see as as part of economics, but the law had it packed in there uh, in a single law. So I'm going to talk about the individual mandate, um, which requires individuals to buy health insurance, 
employer mandate which requires businesses to provide health insurance to, to their employees or offer it. And then I'll look at something the Obamacare did around student loans. You might not be aware of it, you would think something called the Affordable Care Act wouldn't be involved in student loans, but actually it was, so we'll look at that. Um, and I'll say a little bit about the health effects. The others will look at that. Um, but it's not a clean break where the economics ends and the health effects start. So there's some overlap, and I'm going to discuss the overlap. Um, and then I'll conclude a little bit, maybe comment a little bit on, well, why, why did we have this law um, if it has all these unintended consequences? And I'll have a few comments on that. So I'm going to start with, if you're from economics, you've seen this before, that it's called the Laffer Curve. It's named after Arthur Laffer, who's still alive. He just got a reward from the president, um, although it's much older. Actually, uh, John Maynard Keynes also, he didn't call it the Laffer Curve because Laffer was not around back then, but uh, Keynes talked about this same sort of idea that when you tax, would you put the tax rate too high, you might get to a point where you don't get very much revenue from that tax, even though the rate's high. Um, Keynes talked about it in the context of Germany after World War I. He said, you know, we better not lay too many taxes on those Germans. It's, uh, we, all, all we might do is destroy their economy and not get anything from them. Um, and this is something that, that we teach in economics and to be concerned about. You don't really want to get to the point where your tax rate's so high you're not getting much revenue. You might as well reduce the tax rate so you can have revenue. That's the purpose of a tax. And then at the same time, reduce the pain on the people paying the taxes. Um, and so I kind of put some points on this curve. The point A is where you don't have any tax. Point B is where you're kind of in the good range, so to speak, where you're in, the, you're in an area where higher tax rate res results in higher revenue. And then point C is kind of the, the crazy spot. Um, you're at a point where actually reducing the rate would give the government more revenue. It's kind of a win-win for the government gets more revenue and the taxpayers have less pain. Um, and it's been a vibrant political debate, and Laffer kind of initiated some of that. When you're talking about a particular tax, say the income tax or the cigarette tax or the wireless internet services tax, are we at point B or are we at point C? Um, this has been a vigorous debate, and, and Laffer was taking the position on the income tax, we're at point C, and some of his political opponents would say, no, we're at point B. And you can see why you would have the argument. Is those who want to see higher taxes don't want to say we're at C. They would like to say, no, we're at B, and we need to raise taxes and impose a little pain to get the government more revenue. Um, it's a fascinating debate, and I, I'm not sure objectively you could say that it's been settled in these cases. Certainly Laffer had his opinion, and you ask various economists, they'll have an opinion. But I think most of us have to acknowledge that in a lot of these cases, it's hard to tell whether we're at B or C. Um, and that's where the unicorns come in. So to talk about some of the taxes in the Affordable Care Act, I actually have to zoom out of this curve. So think of, uh, if we're kind of looking at it from above, we need to get even further above. We need to back, back out a little bit. So I need to extend the curve way down. So including points at which the tax rates got so high that the government has to spend money to have this tax, which is, seems really crazy, right? That's why I use the word unicorn. Um, this is not something that Laffer ever uh, talked about or worried about. He was just worried, are we at point C instead of point B? And we have a couple taxes in the Affordable Care Act that are at point B. We actually had to pay money to have these taxes in existence. Um, and those are a couple of the taxes I wanted to tell you about today. So the first one is the individual mandate. There may be lawyers who are going to say, no, that's not a tax, it's a penalty. I, I know the lawyers argue about that. But from an economist's point of view, you get charged money by the government for doing something. I'm going to call that a tax. Um, and that's how the individual mandate works. Obamacare says you must buy health insurance or we're going to charge you some money. Call it a penalty, call it a tax. Um, that's the individual mandate. Um, that tax has been taken away now. We'll get to that part, but in the original law. Um, and there was some reasons for that. So the, the reasons given 
at the time, and I, some people would still give these reasons today, is say, hey, you have to force people to buy comprehensive health insurance. If you don't, then all they're going to do is, or some of them, many of them will wait to sign up for health insurance until they're sick. And the market can't function under those conditions, so we have to force people or give them a strong push with this tax to buy health insurance. Um, and this is not only applies in, in the sense of should I have health insurance or not, but also what should be covered in my health insurance. So if you just say people buy health insurance, and they'll say, OK, I'll just get uh, a policy for hangnails. <laughs> and that, that's all the policy they'll get. They won't spend much money and be like they don't have insurance. So one thing the Affordable Care Act did was just specify, hey, insurances really have to be comprehensive. It has to cover all kind of things, um, a whole range of uh, medical type of care that people would get. And anything not having the comprehensive range uh, sometimes pejoratively called junk, junk insurance because it doesn't cover mental health or wouldn't cover um, addiction treatment or things like that. Um, and this is the argument given. If you don't require people to sign up for these things, then they won't sign up until they're actually about to spend the money on those services. Now this ignores, this argument ignores a couple things. First of all, it ignores what we call moral hazard. It's a fancy name, um, maybe rooted in philosophy, but it's a simple idea, which uh, there are some categories of medical claims where people have a lot of discretion, like whether to get mental health coverage, whether to go to an appointment with a psychiatrist every other week. People have a lot of discretion on that. Um, people who might not need it, if you gave it to them for free, they'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Or give them for a low, a low fee, they'll say, yeah, that's somebody I can talk to every other week. Um, and then the psychiatrist sends the plan a big bill, and then our whole insurance plan's expensive because everybody's going to talk to the psychiatrist, even those who don't really need it. Um, so the conventional view in economics, at least prior to the Affordable Care Act, would be some categories of coverage where you don't want to require people to get that coverage. You want to, um, people need to have some skin in the game. Um, they need to pay when they use some of these services. Another thing they ignores, and it turns out to be at least as important in this case, is this argument ignores that the insurance is subsidized. So it's one thing to say, well, if we had no subsidies for insurance, that everybody had to pay full cost for insurance, you could see the argument, well, maybe we should force people to do it, but otherwise, usual story. But you're already encouraging people to do it with a subsidy. So do we really need two encouragements, a subsidy on one side and a tax on the other? Um, that's not so obvious. Uh, certainly the usual argument is not helping us with that. I like to tell a, a story. Um, many people have this story, but this is a story from uh, the Winslet family. And they, um, five kids, husband and a wife, they, uh, I believe they lived in Alabama. And they had, as Pastor Winslet explained on his blog, at the time the Affordable Care Act came out, he said, hey, what I used to do, I'm just a middle class family. I used to buy my health insurance, picked out a plan. It's kind of a reasonable plan. Cost me 250 bucks a month. My family likes it, that's our plan. Leave us alone. And then the Affordable Care Act come along and said, no. They didn't point to Pastor Winslet specifically, but they said, that type of plan's junk. We're not allowing those plans anymore. We're only allowing expensive plans. And Mr. Uh, Pastor Winslet and his family are kind of upset. They're like, wait a second, I had a product I like, and now you outlawed my product, and you're making me buy an expensive, more expensive one that I can't afford. Now I have to have the, put my hand out to the government so that I can afford the product they're forcing me to buy. Um, that kind of explains why the individual mandate could be a problem. Um, if the subsidies were generous enough. Now, how generous are the subsidies? Well, here's a little graph. The bar here, the full bar represents the cost of an Obamacare 
plan um, for a typical person. It varies by age and things like that, but this is for a typical person. Uh, about 8,000 a, uh, a year. The red part is the part that the taxpayer pays for, on average. And the blue part is the part that the actual person insured pays for. So it's a very big subsidy encouraging people to buy uh, Obamacare plans. So if somebody, like the Winslet family, looks at this and says, you know, I don't want that. My view is, well, we should send them a thank you note. They're turning down $6,500 from us taxpayers. We, but instead, what the ACA did is they sent them a tax bill. They say, how dare you turn down our assistance? You owe us even more money now because you didn't buy our plan. And there's something wrong with that. You can see that by getting rid of the individual mandate, which was done uh, recently, the taxpayers are better off. They saved the 6,500 bucks. And the upset people like the Winslet family are better off because they didn't want to do this in the first place. It's a win-win situation. Let me be clear, I'm not saying you shouldn't have subsidies. You want to subsidize a product and the taxpayer could say, hey, yeah, that's my tax money, but I appreciate that there are people getting things that they want but can't quite afford. But then we don't need to send them a bill when they don't take the thing that they supposedly want and don't want quite afford. If they don't want it, then let the taxpayer and them both be happy. The taxpayer keep his money and the person who turned down the plan turn it down. Um, and that's, that's the reason why the individual mandate end up costing money. It, it, it's a policy, that, it's a tax that the government actually had to pay to have it. By, because by having that tax, people like the Winslet went on these plans and we had to pay the $6,500. Um, actually, the $6,500 comes out of taxes, so it really is a negative uh, tax, negative tax revenue from that. And it's not just me saying this. So there are three different perspectives, economic perspectives, that looked at this question, not exactly put in these words, so I've, I put it pretty bluntly today, but they looked at this question, what would happen if we got rid of the individual mandate before we got rid of it very recently? One with Jonathan Gruber from MIT looked at this. The Congressional, uh, Congressional Budget Office looked at it, and then the Trump economic team looked at it. And all three of them came to the same qualitative conclusion. They have somewhat different numbers, but they all came to the conclusion that, yeah, getting rid of the individual mandate tax actually makes money for the government. And really for the reasons that I described around the Winslet family. So this is a really, this is a tax unicorn that I had never seen before. Um, and that way, in a sense, it's kind of a pleasure to have seen this rare thing, the tax that they actually, the government has to pay to have the tax. Um, and the government profits by getting rid of the tax. So that's the first unicorn. And I would be happy enough to, to stop there. But the same law has another t unicorn just like this, which is, wow, this is really amazing. Um, and that's the employer mandate. Now this, this is another tax that we had to pay money in order to have it. But it looked a little differently. This tax turned into a unicorn uh, really due to its complexity, I would say. It's a, it's a complex uh, enforcement process, the way the government collects this tax. So remember, the employer mandate requires businesses to provide health insurance for their employees. And what they do uh, to enforce it, it's really a three-stage process. So the insurance only lasts for a year. A year. But there's a three-year process of enforcing it. So the first part of the enforcement happens the year before the company's supposed to give the coverage. Now, if this sounds complicated, I'm delivering my message that I want because this is, you'll see, the complexity of this is exactly its problem. Um, so prior to the year, we've got to determine whether the employer is going to be subject to this mandate because the law says only large employers, which sounds like a simple idea, but it's a complicated idea. And that's determined in the previous year. And then during the year of the coverage, there's communication between the Obamacare officials and the companies. And then in the year after the coverage, the Internal Revenue Service, which is in charge of collecting taxes in general, including this tax, uh, does some calculating and communicating with the companies. 
And these three have proven to be hopelessly complicated. Why do I say that? Let's look at the amount of money we've gotten from this tax, this complicated tax. So I've drawn two bars here. On the right is with the Congressional Budget Office. When we passed Obamacare, and the president and the, and the congressman who were supporting the law said, hey, we got taxes in here to help pay for it. And they asked the Congressional Budget Office, hey, how much money are we going to get from the employer mandate to help us pay for Obamacare? And the Congressional Budget Office said, uh, we'll get about $48, $46 billion a year from that. And that went toward paying for it, as did the individual mandate and something I'll show you later. What did we actually get? 0.2, not 46, 0.2. Rounded to the nearest billion, you got nothing. We were promised 46 billion. Now this is just the revenue from the employer mandate, that very specific type of tax. Laffer shows up here. So this is not a question of just a low amount of revenue. We might have actually got negative revenue from this because employers in the process of trying to avoid paying the 46 billion, they change the way they're doing business and they probably pay less in other types of taxes like payroll taxes, they pay less in income taxes. So this could be another tax that the government was paying for in the sense that it got less revenue overall because we had this tax as one of the revenue tools. And this is a, from a study that I did, was only able to do it recently when we were able to have the data. This is a graph over time of the fraction of medium and small size firms that are small. Small being below 50. Now I could give a whole course on what it means to be small and how Obamacare defines it, but that's good enough for our purposes today. And you see a spike up in the number of small and medium sized firms that are small. And by miraculous coincidence, that happens to be the first year when the ACA said, if you're, if, you're large, if you're not small, you have to pay this tax. So you saw, we're seeing a bunch of firms here that are changing their way of doing business, particularly how many full-time employees they have on staff, in order to avoid the tax. So that itself costs the government revenue, that they've decided to be small firms instead of, say, medium-sized firms. So you got to take that off of the 0.2 billion that we've collected. So we're in the negative territory now that we have this tax actually the government had to pay for. Now you see it decreasing over time, the fraction of small and medium-sized firms that are small, and we still need to study to figure this out, but my strong suspicion is what's happening is they're realizing that the IRS is not able to collect the money. So then they're like, well, I don't have to rearrange my business to avoid a tax that the government doesn't collect even though it's on the books. Um, so we have, we've had a few years here of businesses distorting their way of doing business and that costs us some revenue. But in the long run, maybe they won't do that anymore and it'll just be a zero, a zero type of tax. Um, so that's our second unicorn. Fits very much in the zoomed out laugher situation where having the tax actually costs money. The last one's not exactly the laugher, but it's interesting nonetheless, especially to students. The student loan program. You might not be aware, but the uh, ACA changed the student loan program. Student loans used to be administered by banks. You know, Chase Bank or US Bank or your favorite bank. Um, the students would go to the bank and get a loan, then pay it back um, after they graduated over time. And the federal government looked at those banks and they say, those banks are getting easy money. Do it. How hard is it to do loans? You get a form from the students, collect the money later. These banks are getting easy money, so we're going to take over that. And so the ACA said that now the student loan business is going to be a federal business and not a private business anymore. And the Congressional Budget Office, I don't mean to pick on them. Uh, there are plenty of other people in Washington saying similar things. At the time, the Congressional Budget Office said, hey, federal government, you're going to make $6 billion a year being the student loan bankers. Easy money. 
Well, now enough time's gone by, we've gotten to see, and the, and the Congressional Budget Office has now changed its tune and said, oh, it actually costs about $4 billion a year to be in the student loan business. It's not a moneymaker. It was a moneymaker when the private businesses were doing it, but not anymore. Um, so these are three ways where the ACA fell short in some really embarrassing ways um, from the economic distortions that it put in. Okay, does, might the ACA have a silver lining doing these different kind of economic damage, but maybe it makes people healthier? Now, I, I can't, I'm not equipped to completely answer that question, and others today will tackle that. But from some of the economic damage that we talked about, um, would leave me to be skeptical. And I want to just share that skepticism with you. Um, so one reason I'm a little skeptical is actually part of the, the reason, part of the design of the ACA, if you can consider it as designed, there's the idea that actually people were spending too much on healthcare. And the idea was to reform the system so people spent less on healthcare. Now maybe that's the right answer, but then we don't want to come along and say, oh, this law is increasing healthcare. No, it was designed to reduce healthcare. At least it was designed to reduce healthcare for middle class people. And the way they did that is with high deductibles. Um, those types of plans are are heavily encouraged, then you have a lot of non-poor people on those plans and then they choose not to use health services because it's, they're not getting insurance helping them. Um, so that's part of the design. Now maybe it didn't fulfill that. <laughs> In the end of the day it didn't do it, but that was one reason to be concerned. Um, back to the moral hazard idea. Um, one of the things I think the ACA does clearly, and you might say well, is re to relieve the financial distress associated with health care. Which is different than the health, right? If you're going bankrupt, bankrupt is not a medical condition, but it is a financial condition. And by releasing the, re relieving the financial distress, that actually can reduce people's incentives to take care of their health. Before Obamacare, if we didn't keep track of the teenage son's diabetes regimen, he'd end up in the emergency room and we'd end up with a, we parents would end up with an $800 bill. And so we keep track of the teenager, even though it's a, totally a pain to keep track of any teenager, we keep track of the teenager's diabetes regimen in order to avoid that $800 bill. And then, uh, the ACA comes along, and now I'm not getting that $800 bill. And I'm like, I'm a busy parent to keeping track of the teenager in all these different ways. Maybe I'm not gonna track that as vehemently as I did in the past. So that, um, that's, a, that's an effect. Now whether that dominates other effects, like maybe the diabetes medicine is now cheaper, we, you know, that's an empirical question, but you have this, that's a second effect going toward less health. Another thing the ACA did was to put price ceilings on health care for elderly people. Now these price ceilings were phased in over many, many, many years, so we haven't quite seen them yet. But according to the law, uh, the rates paid to the physicians of elderly people through the Medicare program were supposed to come way, way down. And anytime you put a price ceiling on something, as an economist, I get worried. First I say we've got to study it, but I get concerned that when we put a price ceiling on something, you're going to have less of it. When we have rent control, we get less apartments. If we have physicians' price ceilings, we're going to have less physicians. Just a concern that I have, again, you want to follow it up, and this is going to require many years until we see it. Um, but this is a third reason that I'm kind of skeptical that it would be encouraging health. Here's the third one, which I'm gonna break into three parts. Um, the ACA subsidized addiction, specifically opioid addiction, um, which is not a healthy thing. So that would be a fourth thing on, on health. 
Um, I took a quote from this uh, interesting Sam Quine's book um, where he talks about how people on Medicaid, which is a program expanded quite a bit by the Affordable Care Act, it existed before. In fact, I believe this quote, he's really thinking about the Medicaid before the ACA, but the principles apply, that for $3, somebody could get opioid pills at the pharmacy that actually cost the government $1,000, we taxpayers, pay the other $9.97, and they can use that perhaps to feed their own addiction, or according to Sam, as I say in the bottom here, they turn around and sell it in the marketplace, perhaps for $10,000. And so the marketplace would begin to be supplied in a new way when you put people on Medicaid be supplied in that way. Um, so that's one example. Separate example, ACA subsidizing the same addiction. It's what's called value-based purchasing. So that's another part of the ACA is over a thousand pages, so there's lots of stuff in there. Another, some of those pages talks about value-based purchasing and says, you know what? We government, we pay hospitals, we've been doing that for years, we're gonna change the way they pay them. We're gonna only pay them if they get good quality scores. You can see the reasoning in that. What's a good quality mean? Well, you gotta read the fine print. It's a survey called the HCAHPS survey. And a big part of that survey is how did your doctor do when you're at the hospital and managing your pain? And doctors learned, before the ACA came along even, that, hey, if I send people home with 90-day supply of opioids instead of just a seven-day supply, I get better scores. <laughs> My hospital makes more money from the government, starting with the ACA. These quality scores existed before, and the government would publish them, and that, that was a reason enough to pump up their scores. But the ACA gave them another reason to pump up their scores, that their government check would be bigger, the better score their hospital got. Um, and that was just removed last year, um, actually less than six months ago. That was removed, but for the life of the ACA until six months ago, this was the policy. Pursuant to the ACA, we pay hospitals more who get better scores uh, on the patient evaluations, which include the pain, pain management. So third part, you had a different part of the ACA that subsidizes addiction. If you follow this, it's section 2502. Um, how does that work? I'll give you a little background. Section 2502 relates to two, two types of uh, treatments that you could purchase out of many, many, many types of treatments. It deals with two of them. One of them's uh, tobacco cessation treatment. That's not what I'm talking about today. The other is called Benzos, the doctors here could tell me the big long name, but they call them benzos. They're tranquilizers, Xanax, the younger people know it as Xanax, and my generation was Valium. Um, these were been known for a long time to be prone to abuse. So um, Tim mentioned that, oh, Obamacare is one of the biggest changes since Medicare. Well, Medicare dealt with this question, and they said, you know, we want to help the senior citizens with their prescription drugs, but not these prescription drugs. Too prone to abuse. We don't want to cover them. Well, Obamacare changed that. It says in Section 25.2, no more. We have to cover those things, too. Now, here's the problem with benzos. Um, they're part of a cocktail that opioid abusers like. They like having their opioids together with the benzos, together with the Xanax makes it feel better, um, whatever. It's a fact that they use them together. Uh, this is a conservative number from the CDC. About a quarter of the people who turn up dead from an opioid overdose also had benzos in their system. So part of the lifestyle, of that lifestyle, is purchasing Xanax, and the ACA said that has to now be covered. Um, All insurance has to cover it. Where this really bites was in Medicare Part D, the program for the elderly. Um, 
that it had to cover that. Now you would think, oh, Casey's just giving me one side of the story. Certainly there was a vigorous debate about these benzos and the going in with opioids and there's advantages and disadvantages. And the government looked at that and they just decided on one side. Really? Okay, let's look at that. So here's, when the ACA, uh, after it was passed, the health department, is called the Department of Health and Human Services, it's called the health department, they had to get their act together and figure out how to get this kind of coverage in available to people because the law said that it had to be done. And this is uh, 105 pages that it put in the Federal Register about expanding coverage pursuant to what the ACA said. And you might think, oh yeah, they go on and on for 105 pages about the pros and cons of doing this thing. Not really. This issue is only dealt with here on page 86. Here's page 86. Where is it dealt with? It's actually dealt with in these two paragraphs. We'll zoom in, what do they talk about in these two paragraphs? They don't talk about abuse, they don't talk about opioid addiction, they don't talk about anything they talk about. All they do is talk about is a little bit of paperwork is gonna be required. They calculated, oh, insurance companies have to do some paperwork and insurance customers will have to read some paperwork and their time's worth $20 an hour, so that's, this, this is the only cost of Section 2502. It's, it's ridiculous, it's ridiculous. Uh, but this is the fact. This is um, what the ACA did, and I'm not aware of any analysis or discussion in the federal government of, gee, maybe we shouldn't do that. And the health department, of course, they have to follow the law. Obamacare is the law of the land. Health department can't violate it, but they are required, they didn't follow it as we can see here, they are required to calculate the costs and benefits nonetheless and let Congress know, hey, Congress, you gave us a law that's causing people to die from overdose. That's one of the costs. And they can, they also should calculate benefits and let Congress know about that. They don't do that. It's just like, let's not get in the way of the train. So, we got plenty of unintended consequences. Now, why is this happening? You know, who benefits from this? Now, there's some people who have ACA plans who do benefit from that, and they are glad about it. Well, we should also be clear that ACA plans are not a viable commercial product. They're not a viable commercial product. That is why they had to ban the competitors, the junk plans, and that's why they had to have a penalty for people who didn't buy it. When you have a viable commercial product out there, people come voluntarily buy your product. You do not have to throw their competitors out of business. You do not have to charge them a fine for not buying your commercially viable product. So, yes, there are some people who benefit, but there's gotta be something else to it. Why do we have a law putting out this not so commercially viable product? And I think it's got a lot to do with special interests. There's special interest groups out there, well represented, um, who do benefit from the law. And one of the areas would be hospitals. I don't have, I could go on and on about special interests, but one I would talk about would be hospitals. So this last uh, chart I will finish with is some data over time. The over time is relevant because the ACA really got going in 2014. And the websites didn't really work, so you maybe you say 2015. Somewhere in those two years, we started to get ACA. Um, now the ACA turns out through a few quirks did not operate, did not uh, was not implemented equally in all the states. And so there's two groups of states here shown. In solid are the states that took on more of the ACA, in particular more of the Medicaid parts of the ACA, and the dashed are the states that took the ACA uh, a more lighter version. Also this chart that I got distinguishes urban from rural. That's not so important for our purpose. And what you can see is uncompensated care went down from the ACA. Sure looks like it. 
states that took on ACA more heavily had a more dramatic decrease in uncompensated care in the hospitals. That means the hospitals found it less common to have people come into their hospital who don't have a way to pay. And you might think that a hospital likes it when people coming to them are paying customers rather than not paying customers. And you can see that in some measures of profit. That's in the right-hand side. Profit turned from heading south to heading north, um, especially in the states that more closely embrace the Affordable Care Act. So that would be, I think you want to think about why we have this law. That would be an important uh, factor to think about. So I welcome your comments and, and questions, and especially hearing the uh, next talks. Thank you. Can we take those now? We've got, uh, ten minutes left in this session. I have a question. And actually, if you're, this questioners are not mic'd up, so if you can kind of repeat the question before I Okay, good idea. So the, the poor family from Alabama, when you go to, when, you know, the market, the way the market works is you go to the grocery store, you buy a banana, you understand the banana, it's a very clear banana, you know what a banana tastes like. When you go buy an insurance product, you don't know really, you don't understand it. Most people, I don't understand it, and, and you know, I, I, I know economics, and it's a complicated thing. So you're gonna get a, a, you call them junk, what do you call them, junk policies or something like that. So it's very possible that um, shady insurance sales people are selling insurance products that don't really work. And then a lot of the people, like the, the family you showed me there, they look pretty healthy. And so everybody likes their insurance when it's a low premium and they never need to use it because they're healthy. The, the time that people start to dislike their insurance is when one of their family members gets very sick and it turns out their insurance company doesn't cover it. So do you have a, a response to the problem that allowing a bunch of people to buy junk, you call, what, what you call junk insurance, if they are really fooled, the people are fooled um, uh, by to buy this stuff and then harmed by it. How how could we? I mean, Obamacare, their policies were meant to stop that. I guess that, to stop that from happening. Okay. The question is, um, you know, are people fooled by junk insurance? Is it a good thing that Obamacare kind of prohibits the product that, that fools them? So. Um, that's an aspect of life. I think you want to get things in proportion. So there could be some benefit to banning the junk plans. I'm using the, I actually like the plans. I wish Mr. Winslet had his plan. The critics call it junk plan. So I, I like to embrace my critics. So I'm going to use their word, um, the junk plan. There may be some benefits from that. But let's sit down and look at the cost and the benefits. And, these crazy costs, I mean, that we'll be spending these $6,500 over and over and over again. Is it worth it for helping a few people who made mistakes from making mistakes on their health insurance plan? That's the kind of calculus that you'd want to make. The kind of argument that I started with, what I call the technocrats argument, doesn't get into these subtleties, right? It just says absolute, we got to force people to do it. There's no costs to doing that. We just do it. There's, it's unambiguous treatment. And in my view, it is ambiguous. You have these different costs and benefits. And one of the huge costs is the 6500 bucks to the taxpayer. Now, I would describe some of these so-called drunk pans a little differently. So you take people like, maybe you get to be my age, not on Medicare yet. Um, but my wife and I aren't going to have kids, uh, any more kids. We've got five at home. But we're not going to have any more, okay? be some kind of biblical miracle if we were to have another kid. So we might want to buy coverage that doesn't cover pregnancy. It's not allowed under Obamacare. You can't sell a policy that doesn't cover pregnancy. Um, and I wouldn't view myself as being foolish for buying a no pregnancy coverage. Um, but Obamacare ruled that out. They don't allow it. They didn't allow it. Now, the new administration has tried to relax some of those rules. Um, and make room for some so-called junk plans that don't cover pregnancy that people in their 50s can purchase. Um, and that, that, that's kind of the issue. Now, 
if he didn't have moral hazard and some of these other issues, they'd say, well, yeah, but Casey, by not buying pregnancy insurance, that part of insurance, maybe that's a thousand a year part of your insurance, there's the people who are of childbearing age who are losing your thousand dollars. And that's kind of a, this viewing is kind of a zero-sum game, but the market's not a zero-sum game. Um, the thousand dollars I pay toward pregnancy doesn't go all. Not even much of it would go to that. A lot of it goes to administration and things like that. So it's just better that I don't have the coverage. Um, kind of common sense type type of approach. Any other question? Yeah. A uh, question about the uh, the taxes. When you talk about the subsidy that the government gives, the big big red red line. You know, a lot of the a lot of those uh, embedded taxes are things that we don't see. It's not like everyone in this room is paying taxes. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, things written into the, the ACA that uh, are embedded taxes, prescription drugs, uh, the sale of your house, and some other things that are in that law that most people don't realize. And so that red line disproportionately affects the elderly, especially the Medicare population, who tend to be on more medications. And even with their insurance card from Blue Cross or United Healthcare, they're actually paying a higher premium they can get through an independent, you know, pharmacy benefit manager that they exist now and the prices are much lower. So that is not across the board. That's a disproportionate share of taxation to one segment of the population. Okay, so we had a comment, I, I guess, uh, called a comment on about the nature of the uh, taxpayer support for the ACA. And it was said that it's disproportionately on elderly. Now, the part that falls in the elderly, I didn't count here. So the ACA is full of taxes. This particular graph, I just, I figure it's dramatic enough if I just count one of the taxes. Um, and this has to do with the premium tax credits that go with Form 1040. But there are a lot of other taxes, of various degree of visibility and invisibility that are in there. Um, and I do agree that it, it has particular increased. Uh, prescription drug prices, which is something that mainly elderly people buy. Um, this was known ahead of time. Uh, it, it was known the more people you put on Medicaid, the more the prescription pr drug prices go up. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that prescription drug prices came down 2018 for the first time in 46 years because people were coming off of Medicaid. The new administration is not so supportive of, they're following the law, but their enthusiasm for enforcing this law is a lot less than the previous administration. So you see people coming off of Medicaid now um, that hadn't happened for about 10 years. And that has an impact on prescription drug prices as well as some other, some other policies. I think we have time for one more question. The front row. You, you stated, and I just want to make sure I understand, that Medicare Part D was required to cover benzodiazepine with certain drugs. No, it's prohibited. Prohibited from covering. Were previously prohibited yeah. and required to cover. Yeah. But was that extended to all other insurance plans? They were required to cover those drugs as well? Yes. Because to use the one example, yet the vast majority of people on opioid overdose are not Medicare-based patients. They're going to be younger people. So you're, I just want to make, make sure I understand you that the law required all plans under the net the laws specifics cover those drugs among other things. Is that correct? It is correct. Now it's not so clear what it means to those other plans as it is for Medicare Part D. It's very clear because they in the Federal Register the Health Department explained here's what it means. Now just because an elderly person gets the prescription doesn't mean it goes in their mouth, right? It, which in particular with those drugs, they end up in the secondary market and the, the person who overdoses on it might not be elderly at all. Um, so I, I, we gotta be careful from equating Medicare dollars with treatments for elderly people. The, the, in this area, they're not even close to equal. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.